G'day everyone, my name's Matt, I'm the last man standing on the staff team this week, next 10 days apparently. Um, well, do you know what the first thing I notice about this passage is when I look at it? It's that as Jesus comes to teach about his identity, the very first thing he does is that he prays. Prayer is key in understanding who Jesus really is. And so if we want to get anything out of this passage, then we need to do the same. So let's, let's kick off in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that through it, you reveal yourself to us. Lord, we pray that today, as we grapple with the question of who Jesus is, we, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand what you're trying to tell us. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, uh, I, along with a, a bunch of other people, were chosen to do this uh, peer support kind of course. The idea was um, that the older ones of us would kind of look after the younger ones and kind of have this kind of cool peer support system. Um, and it, with the exception of, you know, myself and a couple of the other guys, most of the guys who were chosen for this thing were the kind of the, 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 the beefy, burly kind of tough guys. Uh, in my year, and the tough guys in the year, years below us, they were the ones that had that kind of, you know, blokiness about them. Um, and uh, on one of the days that we did this uh, peer support thing, we went and did a high ropes course together. Um, and on this day, it, it was kind of bizarre for me, because I love high ropes course, I, I really enjoy doing that kind of thing. Um, and I had the impression that all these kind of tough guys that I was surrounded by would be really into it as well. And they'd just go, like, oh, yeah, up in the air, let's do this dangerous stuff, it'll be cool. But my expectation of them was completely wrong. When they were suspended a couple of metres above the ground, like attached in a harness, they were reduced to quivering little boys. It was really bizarre. I, I would have thought, my expectation was, that they, would, they were tough, they were going to be into this. They'd be, yeah, let's go. But they completely weren't. Some of them were on the verge of tears and panic attacks. Now, I'm not saying that being scared of heights is a bad thing, not at all. But the point is, my expectation of these guys was way off. It was incorrect. And seeing the reality was a little bit weird for me to witness. Um, now, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever kind of built a picture up of someone in your mind, and then when you've when you meet the real person and you find out the real them, it's someone a bit different to what you expected? Ever had that kind of experience before? Well, today we're faced with the question, who is Jesus? And you might think that you know the answer. But when you take a closer look, when you actually listen to what Jesus says about himself, the reality might be a little bit different from what you think from what you expect. That was certainly the case for the disciples uh, in our passage today. So if you've still got your Bibles there, open them back up to, to Luke chapter 9, because we're going to have a bit of a look at it. And up until this point uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that Dr. Luke, the, the author of this Gospel, is particularly interested in speaking about the topic of Jesus' identity, Right? Uh, along the way, he, he's brought it up a few times. The first time we see it is, is when the angel reveals to Mary who 
her, her son is going to be when he grows up, what he's, what he's going to do, what his identity is. And, and Luke tells us uh, about John the Baptist and how he is there to identify who Jesus is. Uh, and, and John even managed to do that one time when both he and Jesus were still in the womb. That's pretty impressive. And he tells us about uh, Simeon, the old guy, and Anna, the prophetess, who were both concerned about the identity of this little baby Jesus who had come to the temple to be uh, dedicated. And then time and time again, as we see Jesus doing amazing things throughout the first nine chapters of this uh, gospel, people keep asking things like, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is this fellow that speaks blasphemy? Is he a prophet from old? Who is this that even forgives sins? Who is this that commands the winds and the water and they obey him. The question of Jesus' identity is a big theme in the first few chapters of Luke. And here in chapter 9, it reaches a climax as even Jesus himself asks the question, Who am I? But before we look at what the crowds thought about that and before we look at what the disciples thought, what do you say? Who do you say that Jesus is? If you've never asked yourself that question before, it's a really important one to ask yourself because whether you believe in him or not, the answer to who Jesus is has an eternal impact on who you are. So I'll give you a second now just to get a picture of Jesus in your head, what you think, who you think he is, so you can compare your Jesus to the Jesus in the passage and see how he holds up. So I'll give you a second. Who is Jesus? Have you got a picture? All right, so who is he? Well, when it comes to the passage uh, and the crowds of the time, there are a few ideas floating about out there. And they're not just kind of random guesses about who he might be. They're informed opinions from people who are familiar with the history and the teachings of Israel. They know their stuff, right? And so they, they, have, they have some thoughts about who Jesus is. You know, they, first of all, they think perhaps he's John the Baptist. You know, after all, they had pretty high hopes for John. He had a powerful message and it caused people to turn back to God. But now he's, he's dead. He's just been killed by, by um, King Herod. And that's a bit of an anticlimax for them. So their hopes are maybe, maybe he's John the Baptist raised back to life. Now, you guys have watched Family Feud, right? You know what happens when they get a wrong answer on the survey? The survey says... <laughs> wrong answer. It's not, he's not John the Baptist. Okay, so what about Elijah? A couple of chapters ago, chapter 7, Jesus went to a widow's house and raised her dead son back to life again. And Elijah, back in the Old Testament, did exactly the same thing uh, for the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17. So perhaps this is a sign that this guy here, this Jesus, is actually Elijah, come back from the dead. The survey says... Wrong answer. Okay, so what about one of the prophets from of old? Is he Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah? He's certainly got the wisdom of one of these guys. And he's, and he's even doing miracles. Perhaps he's a prophet. Come back to life. And the survey says, you guessed it.
See, these crowds, they might know their stuff when it comes to the Old Testament scriptures. But that just it didn't mean that they got who Jesus was. Simply knowing lots of stuff about the Bible and about Christian things, it does not guarantee that you know who Jesus is. It's not enough. It's not enough to simply know about somebody. I mean, we all know who this guy is, right? It's Donald Trump. We know about him. <laughs> I'll, I'll withhold judgment. We know about Donald Trump, right? We've known about him for years. But just because we know about him, it doesn't mean that he's going to invite you over his house for dinner and share his personal life with you and write you into his will just because you know about him. It's not a real relationship. A real relationship is personal. And with Jesus, a personal relationship is required. So, what about those who actually did have a personal relationship with Jesus? What about the disciples? What did they have to say? Well, have a look at your Bibles there. Verse 20. Jesus turns to them and says, What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, on behalf of all the disciples, answered, The Christ of God. And the survey says, Right answer. I don't know, what does the survey say when you get it right? I was going to say top dollar, but that's the wrong one. That's, that's like, that's Wheel of Fortune. It's the right answer. They got the right answer. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the, the one anointed by God as Savior and King. That's what Christ, that's what the word actually means. Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for to come. You see, God had told his people back in the Old Testament several times that there was a Savior King, a Christ, who was coming and who was going to make things right again. I won't go into all the Old Testament references, references now, just for time's sake, but if you want to look one up, 2 Samuel 7 is a great place to start. You know, God declares that the Christ is coming. And here he is. The disciples have identified him. It's Jesus. And so Jesus responds. You know, having been properly identified, he rejoices that at last they've got it. Hallelujah. He gives them all high fives and he takes them out for kosher kebabs to celebrate. That's not what happens, is it? What does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond? Verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. What? It's a bit weird. Doesn't he want people to know the truth? I mean, why does he hush them up if they've got it right? Well, I think the reason that he silences them, it's not just because it's not the right time, the time hasn't come yet. I also think it's because if the disciples do start spreading the word about who Jesus is, they're actually going to spread the wrong message. Sure, they've correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, but they had a misguided expectation of what the Christ will do and how he'll do it. You see, the Jews of the time were expecting their saviour would be a kind of action hero. They were expecting someone like Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings. You know, Aragorn who leads his people, uh, of the people of Middle-earth, into an epic battle and is victorious over the evil Sauron. That's what they were expecting. They were expecting the Christ to bring a political overhaul, that he would rise up and stick it to the Romans and re-establish the kingdom of Israel 
back to its former glory, just like it was back in the days of King Solomon and King David, when it was a kingdom of peace and prosperity. And the Christ was going to set this up never to be defeated again. The vision that they had in mind for Jesus, this, this is the vision they had in mind for Jesus when they labelled him the Christ. But Jesus says, uh-uh, that's not how it's going to roll out, peeps. Jesus' intention was not to take the kingdom of Israel back to the Halcyon days, but rather to deal with its fatal flaw and take it forward into a better, more glorious future. You see, there was an, an inherent problem in the kingdom, even under the likes of King David and King Solomon. And that problem was, was, in, was within the very hearts of the king and his people. And that problem is, of course, sin. Our human inclination to rebel against God. And anyway, since when does political overhaul actually work? Has there ever, ever yet been a government or a monarch that has answered every problem in society and managed to bring everlasting pre- peace and prosperity to any nation? Has that ever happened yet? No, it hasn't. That's because it it never works. Because political overhaul is just putting yet another sinful person in the power seat to make decisions and lead with their own sinful heart. The real problem with our world is that sin is at the heart of every one of us. And so it's crazy to think that a worldly government will ever have a hope of accomplishing true, lasting change within sinful humanity. And so if Jesus, as the Christ, is going to succeed in dealing with the true problem of sin once and for all, he's got to go about it in a more effective way than leading people into battle and overthrowing a government. He's got to eradicate sin for good. And so he lays out for the disciples his plans to achieve this. And if you take a look at verse 22, he starts by affirming that he is the Christ they've been expecting. And he affirms it by referring to himself as this guy called the Son of Man. So the Son of Man, it's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. This is one of those Old Testament passages I was talking about, which promises promises that one is to come and establish the kingdom of God eternally. And so by referring to himself as the Son of Man, Jesus affirms their answer. But then he goes ahead and turns everything on its head. He says, yep, he's the Christ, but if he's going to be effective, it's going to require him suffering. And it's going to require him being rejected by the very people he'd come to save. And it's going to require him intentionally going to his death. Now, this is not usually how kings act. This is not how kings get things done. And so, as the disciples heard this, you can imagine the look of shock and confusion and even fear on their faces. They were probably thinking, hang on a second, Jesus. Don't kings establish their kingdoms through through power and might? If, If a king suffers rejection and dies... Well, that's the end of their kingdom. How can a king save his people if he can't even save himself? 
So I imagine the disciples would have started to feel as though their hopes were being crushed by the very one uh, that was supposed to fulfill them. And with the implication of what Jesus had just said starting to roll out in their minds, you can understand that there might be a real temptation to start to doubt him and to begin to shy away from him. Everything's been thrown up in the air and now they have to decide whether they're going to continue following Jesus and placing their hope in him as Christ or whether to to give up, to leave him. And so what Jesus does at this moment is he seizes the moment and he spells out exactly what it will mean for anyone to be a part of this king's kingdom. Have a look there at verse 23. This is what he says. He said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? A kingdom is defined by its king. And so the kingdom of Jesus Christ is characterized by self-denial, by endurance through suffering, and by the laying down of one's life, even to death. And Jesus tells his disciples, if you're going to be a part of this kingdom, then you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me through suffering, through rejection, and even through death, both my own and yours. That's the reality about how this kingdom is going to be established. You know, you can try and gain the whole world. You can try and reclaim the glory of the kingdom of Israel of old. But what good is it if you forfeit your very self in the process? What good is it if you gain it all but fail to deal with sin, which leads to death and the judgment of God? It would all be for nothing. And then Jesus says something quite chilling. Have a look at verse 26. He says, If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's worth letting that sink in. That's, that's a pretty weighty thing to say. Now, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory. Remember the Son of Man, that allusion to Daniel 7, which speaks about the moment that he comes into power and his eternal dominion and everlasting indestructible kingdom is finally established and all peoples of every nation worship him. That is not a moment that you want the Christ to be ashamed of you. Now, We need to be careful that we don't get this bit wrong. And it's easy to do because when we read this, we have the tendency to think that Jesus is saying that from here on in, if you ever feel scared or apprehensive about standing up and sharing the gospel with someone, or if you ever feel nervous about telling people that you're a Christian, or if you're ever intimidated to fight for what you believe in the face of the opposition, well, then on judgment day, Jesus is going to be ashamed of you and he's going to send you to hell. That's not what it's saying here. If that were true, 
then not one of these disciples would have stood a chance because each and every one of them deserted Jesus out of fear and shame on the night that he was arrested and taken to be crucified. I mean, if you are fearful and intimidated to stand up for what you believe, then certainly that is something to prayerfully work on. It'd be great if you could get to the point uh, where you're able to give the reason for the hope that you have to anyone who asks. But that's not the issue here that Jesus is talking about. Now, Jesus is declaring the reality of his kingdom, that it doesn't function the way that we expect a worldly kingdom should function. You know, from a, from a worldly point of view, it's an upside-down kingdom, where the first are last and the last are first. It's not powerful and glorious in the way the world understands and seeks power and glory. This king's power and his glory come from his humility and his sacrifice. And Jesus is unashamedly declaring, this is my kingdom and this is how it works. If you want to stay on board with me, this is how it has to be. And let me tell you, disciples, this is going to take your pride down a few notches. You're going to have to let go of any conception of worldly glory and instead take up your cross. Because if anyone is ashamed of a kingdom characterized by humility with a sacrificial king, you know, if that's beneath you because your heart desires worldly power and worldly glory, then sorry, this is not going to work out. If we can't get on board with what Jesus is saying about himself, and his kingdom, then he's not going to let us stay on the ship for all eternity and pretend that everything's okay. That's what he's saying here with the whole don't be ashamed thing. He's telling any that would follow him that when it comes to the kingdom of God, there's no fence you can sit on. You can't hedge your bets. You're either in or you're not. And then, as if to ensure the disciples make their decision, Jesus declares that the coming of this kingdom is not very far off. Have a look at verse 27. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And of course, the, kingdom, uh, the coming of the kingdom happened not long after this. From the moment that Jesus tasted death, on behalf of his people to deal with their sin, when the Son of Man was killed and then raised to life on the third day, from then the kingdom of God began to grow like a mustard seed planted in fertile soil. And as the church grew, it did so in the character of its king, growing through suffering and rejection, even the death of many of its saints, including most of the guys who were standing there before him on that day. And we can read about this in the action-packed sequel to the book of Luke, which is the book of Acts, and, of course, through the rest of the New Testament. But where does that all leave us? Well, let's go back to our original question. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, most people have an opinion about who Jesus is, which can be categorized into one of four L words. Some people think that Jesus is a liar. You know, he just said that he was the son of God. He wasn't really. He was lying. Some people think that Jesus was a lunatic. You know, he truly thought that he was the son of God. But actually, he was just delusional. 
Uh, some people today think that Jesus is a legend. And not like a, hey, legend, but like a, like a, a historical person who's been exaggerated over the centuries. To the point that the idea of him is inflated into a legend beyond the reality. Like, kind of like in the vein of King Arthur or something like that. Or of course, some people think Jesus is the Lord. The Christ of God come to save his people from their sin and restore them into eternal, an eternal relationship with their heavenly father. Does your Jesus that, that you picture, is, does he fit into one of these four categories? Liar, lunatic, lord or legend? If he does, what's the basis of your conclusion? My observation is that a lot of people make their conclusion about who Jesus is based on nothing much more than simply what they want to believe or what allows them to live the life that they feel like living. That's not a very good grounds on which to make an eternity-altering decision, is it? Just what I feel like or what I want. The Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, is an actual historical document written by an academic who's taken the time to collect data from eyewitnesses, people who, who actually saw Jesus and touched him and heard him, who actually knew Jesus personally. He took that information and then collated it into uh, an account of Jesus' life. seems to me this is a much better basis on which to decide who Jesus is. And as we look at the Gospel of Luke, we see that the data points to the reality that Jesus is Christ, the, the one sent from God to restore humanity to their creator. Who do you say Jesus is? And what is the basis for your conclusion? But this passage raises a further question for us, doesn't it? What do you expect of Jesus? Don't you hate it when people have the wrong expectations of you? Do you hate that? I hate it. You know, when people expect way more of you than what you're actually capable of doing, or even when they expect less of you than what you're able to do. When you, I hate it when, when your expectations and somebody else's expectations doesn't line up and it leads to conflict. Even the little things like who's going to do the washing up tonight. You know, we've, had that, we've all had that unmet expectation, haven't we? None of us like it. Anyone like it? If you do, you're weird. What do you expect from Jesus? And do your expectations line up with what he tells us here in Luke 9? Or, like the disciples, are your expectations misguided? Do you expect that because Jesus is God, he should make all your trials and troubles just go away? Or do you expect that Jesus should just heal all of your loved ones who are sick? Do you expect Jesus should just answer the, our prayers the way that you want him to answer them? You know, these kinds of expectations, they aren't actually in line with who Jesus really is as he reveals himself in Scripture, are they? They're not in line with that. They're self-focused desires to keep us feeling comfortable. But I don't think Jesus had comfort in mind when he said, take up your cross and follow me daily. So if these are the kinds of things that, that we're expecting from Jesus, then we're bound to be disappointed from time to time. Jesus is not about granting prayer wishes. 
He's about dealing with sin and restoring his people into relationship with God. He's about helping his people live as citizens of the kingdom of God. So when it comes to what we can expect of Jesus, we really ought to base our expectations not off what we want Jesus to be like, but rather off of what he reveals in the scripture about the Christ of God. And when we build up our understanding of what it means for us to be part of his kingdom, we ought to remember that it's, it's not, for us it's not about glory and comfort now. It's about denying ourselves, saying no to our own aspirations, and rather taking up our cross daily and following Jesus through suffering, through rejection, and even through death. But we can do this with the expectation, the certain hope, that as we do follow Jesus, he will lead us through the suffering and through the rejection. And he will bring us through death into eternal life in his kingdom where sin and death no longer have any power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word and that through it you reveal to us who you really are and who Jesus was. Thank you that you sent him as the Christ, our Saviour, King, and that he died and rose back to life to bring us back into relationship with you. Heavenly Father, help us to be subjects of King Jesus, to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and to live as members of his eternal kingdom. Amen.